Welcome to my podcast, my dad podcast. This is the 1787 Project, the podcast version of the lectures for my socially distanced class on the U.S. Constitution at the University of Missouri. I'm your professor and host, Justin Dyer. Today, we are talking about two very different political issues with one thing in common. They both have to do with federalism. The first is the Medicaid expansion provision in the Affordable Care Act of 2010, and the other is a provision in Arizona law also passed in 2010 that made it a state-level offense to violate federal immigration law. Both were the subject of litigation at the Supreme Court in 2012. Parts of both were declared unconstitutional. And in both cases, a particular conception of federalism made the difference in the case. The first case is the National Federation of Independent Businesses versus Sebelius about the Affordable Care Act. And the second is Arizona versus United States about state-level penalties for violations of federal immigration laws. Let's start with the Affordable Care Act. One of the goals Congress had when writing the Affordable Care Act was to increase the number of Americans who were eligible for Medicaid. Medicaid is a federal-state partnership that provides health insurance to low-income and other at-risk populations. It was created in 1965 at the same time as Medicare, which provides health insurance for seniors. The federal government provides funding and sets up parameters for eligibility, and then the states are responsible for administering the program and assuming some of the costs. Two things to note about this. First, Congress's power to do this under the Constitution comes from the Spending Clause. Article 1, Section 8 says that Congress shall have, quote, power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises, to pay the debts and provide for the common defense and the general welfare of the United States. There have been some constitutional debates about what exactly this clause means and what limits there are to Congress's authority to spend money. Can it just spend money to promote the general welfare? Or does the spending have to relate directly to one of the other enumerated powers? Is it just saying you can spend money and you can do that connected to one of these enumerated powers? And we're going to say that's for the general welfare. It has to be for the welfare of the whole, but that's not its own independent source of power. The short answer, at least from the Supreme Court in the 20th century, is that Congress has a power to spend money for the general welfare that is independent of its other enumerated powers. This is one of the key ways that Congress influences policy in the states today. It gives funding and then attaches conditions to the receipt of those funds. The classic case here is South Dakota versus Dole. In that case, Congress conditioned the receipt of federal highway funds on a state's making the legal drinking age 21 years old. If you didn't comply, you would lose a small percentage, I think it was about 5% of available funds. Before then, there was no uniform national drinking age. For many years in Oklahoma, women could buy beer at 18, but men had to wait until they were 21, and states could set that age wherever they wanted. The Supreme Court struck down Oklahoma's law on equal protection grounds, but there was no reason why a state had to settle on 21 as the magic number. In the South Dakota versus Dole case, the court said, yep, Congress can spend money for the general welfare and it can put conditions on the money it spends, but Congress can't just put any conditions on the money it spends. According to this case, the conditions had to be related to the actual purpose of the spending. You couldn't say, here's some money for education, but we'll take it away if you don't ban fossil fuels. It has to be related in some way to why you're spending the money in the first place. 
Second, the consequences of violating the conditions have to be clearly stated up front. The state has to know what it stands to lose by violating the conditions of the funding. And then finally, Congress can't turn the carrot into a stick by structuring the incentive in such a way that it becomes coercive. It's this third aspect of South Dakota versus Dole that creates problems for the Affordable Care Act. One of Congress's goals was to expand Medicaid eligibility in the states. But remember the anti-commandeering principle from New York versus United States and Prince versus United States means that Congress can't just order the states to do anything. They can't just tell them they have to expand eligibility for Medicaid. What Congress can do is create a spending program that comes with conditions. If you accept this money, then you must expand Medicaid eligibility. That's what Congress does in the 2010 Affordable Care Act. It increases eligibility for Medicaid to anyone making 133% of the federal poverty level, and it increases federal dollars that will go into the program so that by 2020, surprise, here we are now, the federal government would cover 90% of the cost of new enrollees, and the state would cover the remaining 10%. If a state chose not to expand Medicaid eligibility, though, they forfeit all of their existing Medicaid funds. Putting this in perspective, about 15% of people in Missouri are enrolled in Medicaid at a cost of close to $10 billion a year. The majority of that is paid by the federal government, but the state still has a significant share. Now, either because they didn't think Medicaid should be available to people at 133% of the federal poverty level, or because they were worried about the state's ability to fund the additional 10% of newly eligible Medicaid recipients, or for some other reason, 28 states challenged this provision in court, and they said, we don't want to expand Medicaid eligibility, but we also don't want to lose our existing funding. Their argument was that the Affordable Care Act failed that third prong of the test for conditional spending from South Dakota versus Dole. It turned the carrot into a stick and became coercive. The Supreme Court agreed. As Chief Justice John Roberts put it, the Affordable Care Act's Medicaid expansion provision was a gun to the head of the state's. Listen here to the part of his opinion announcement having to do with Medicaid expansion. Medicaid expansion. Enacted in 1965, Medicaid offers federal funding to states to assist needy persons in obtaining medical care. In order to receive that funding, states must comply with federal rules governing matters such as who receives care and what services are provided at what cost. The Affordable Care Act dramatically increases state obligations under Medicaid. The current Medicaid program requires states to cover only discrete categories of particularly vulnerable individuals, pregnant women, children, needy families, the blind, and the disabled. There is no mandatory coverage for most childless adults, and parents receive aid only if their income is far below the federal poverty line. The Medicaid expansion, in contrast, requires states to cover all individuals under the age of 65, with incomes below 133% of the federal poverty line. And, critically for this case, if a state does not comply with the Act's new coverage requirements, it may lose not only the federal funding for the expansion, but all of its federal Medicaid funds. The Constitution's spending clause grants Congress the power to pay the debts and provide for the general welfare of the United States. Our cases have recognized limits on Congress's power to use the spending clause to compel the states to advance federal objectives. One of the fundamental tenets of our Constitution is that the states are independent sovereigns, not merely departments of the federal government. Our cases thus make clear that Congress cannot commandeer state governments to carry out federal programs. 
That is true whether Congress directly commands a state to run a federal program or indirectly coerces a state to adopt a federal program as its own. Normally, the way for states to avoid complying with conditions on federal funds they do not like is to refuse to take the money. The states are separate and independent sovereigns. Sometimes they have to act like it. The Medicaid expansion, however, is far from the typical case. Congress did not merely condition the new funds for implicating, implementing the expansion on whether states agreed to expand their Medicaid programs. Instead, Congress threatened to withhold states' existing Medicaid funds if they do not comply with the expansion. The states claim that this threat serves no purpose other than to force unwilling states to sign up for the new program. We agree. There is no valid reason to condition a state's existing Medicaid funds, which are already being spent according to federal conditions, on agreeing to the new program. We examined a similar situation in a case called South Dakota versus Dole. There we did not strike down the federal law, but only because the amount of money at stake was so small, less than one-half of one percent of South Dakota's total budget. Under those circumstances, we held that the threat to withdraw funds was, quote, relatively mild encouragement, so that whether to accept the federal funds and conditions remains the prerogative of the states, not merely in theory but in fact, end quote. In this case, the threat to withhold funds is more than relatively mild encouragement. It is a gun to the head. A state that opts out of the Medicaid expansion stands to lose all of its existing Medicaid funding. The threatened loss of over 10 percent of a state's overall budget leaves a state with no real option but to accept the Medicaid expansion. The government, however, claims that the Medicaid expansion is just a modification of the existing program. It observes that the original law contains a clause expressly reserving the right to alter, amend, or repeal any provision of the Medicaid program. But the Medicaid expansion is a shift in kind, not merely degree. Under the Affordable Care Act, Medicaid is transformed into a program to meet the health care needs of the entire non-elderly population with income below 133 percent of the poverty level. It is no longer a program to care for the neediest among us, but rather an element of a comprehensive national plan to provide universal health insurance coverage. A state could hardly anticipate that Congress's right to alter or amend the Medicaid program included the power to transform it so dramatically. We thus reject the government's argument that the states agreed to this when they signed up for the original Medicaid program. Threatening to withdraw states' existing Medicaid funds if the states do not accept the expansion is an impermissible attempt to conscript states into the federal bureaucratic army. As Roberts insisted, the states still have the choice, and the debates about expansion continued on in the states even though the states were no longer threatened with the loss of their existing funding. That debate continued in Missouri right up until the August primaries that we just had. In those primaries, 53% of voters approved Amendment 2 to the Missouri Constitution, making Missouri the 38th state to adopt Medicaid expansion, which will now go into effect in July 2021. Voters were asked, in part, quote, Do you want to amend the Missouri Constitution to adopt Medicaid expansion for persons 19 to 64 years old with an income level at or below 133% of the federal poverty level as set forth in the Affordable Care Act? And 53% of them said yes, and so that's now in the Missouri Constitution. Medicaid expansion lives on, but as a carrot held out by the federal government rather than a stick. 
Now to the second major federalism-related case at the Supreme Court in 2012, Arizona versus United States. In the same year that Congress passed the Affordable Care Act, the state legislature of Arizona passed SB 1070, a state law that had a few different components about immigration. First, it made it a state-level crime to fail to comply with federal alien registration requirements. And the next, it made it a state-level crime for unauthorized aliens to work in the state of Arizona. Then it authorized state and local law enforcement officers to arrest individuals that, quote, the officer has probable cause to believe has committed any public offense that makes the person removable from the United States. And finally, the act requires officers conducting stops or arrests to verify the person's immigration status with the federal government. What parts of the Constitution are in play here? Well, for one, Congress's enumerated power to establish a uniform rule of naturalization. Naturalization means admitting a foreigner to citizenship, and this enumerated power gives Congress control over the admission of foreigners to the country and the rules by which they may become citizens or gain legal standing. And then, of course, Article 6 makes the Constitution the supreme law of the land, any state law to the contrary notwithstanding. And finally, the Tenth Amendment says that any power not delegated to the United States nor prohibited by it to the states is reserved to the states respectively, or to the people. And so the constitutional question, has Arizona exercised a power that has been delegated exclusively to the United States, to the federal government, and in that sense prohibited by the Constitution to the states? Or has the United States written a law that has preempted or prevented Arizona from passing this statute? There are two basic ways of looking at this question on the Supreme Court. One is represented by the majority opinion written by Justice Anthony Kennedy and joined by Roberts, Ginsburg, and Sotomayor that federal immigration law is exclusively a power of the national government and that Arizona can't try to independently enforce federal immigration laws by making violation of federal law a state-level offense. The only provision that could stand on its face prior to any dispute about how it's actually applied was the provision requiring state officers to inquire about someone's federal immigration status, the so-called show-me-your-papers provision of the law. And in dissent, Justice Scalia, joined by Thomas and Alito, argued that all four provisions of the Arizona law were, in fact, constitutional, presumptively. Their basic argument was that there's no conflict between state and federal law here. The state law simply enhances the enforcement of federal immigration restrictions. Not only that, but the dissenters saw the national power to write a uniform rule of naturalization to be about granting citizenship only, not about excluding foreigners from any particular state. The power to control borders and to expel foreigners is an attribute of sovereignty, Scalia insists, and this attribute of sovereignty was not given up by the states. Thinking back to the federalism-based issues here, the case is hinged on different conceptions of the constitutional division of authority between the states and the national government. Here's Justice Kennedy's conclusion after going through each provision in Arizona's law. With power comes responsibility. And the sound exercise of national power over immigration depends on the nation's meeting its responsibility to base its laws on a political will informed by searching, thoughtful, rational civic discourse. Arizona may have understandable frustrations with the problems caused by illegal immigration while that process continues, but the state may not pursue policies that undermine federal law. But it's precisely that point that Arizona is undermining federal law that Justice Scalia took issue with in his dissenting opinion. Not only does the power to confer citizenship have nothing to do with the power to exclude immigrants, 
But as I have described, the naturalization clause was a vindication of state rather than federal power over immigration. Federal power over immigration comes from the same source as state power over immigration. It is an inherent attribute, perhaps the fundamental attribute, of sovereignty. The states, of course, are sovereign, the United States being a union of sovereign states. To be sovereign is necessarily to possess the power to exclude unwanted persons and things from the territory. That is why the Constitution's prohibition of a state's imposing duties on imports made an exception for, quote, what may be absolutely necessary for executing its inspection laws. Thus, this Court's cases have held that the states retain an inherent power to exclude. That power can be limited only by the Constitution or by laws enacted pursuant to the Constitution. The Constitution, as we have seen, does not limit states' power, but to the contrary, vindicates it. So the question in this case is quite simply whether the laws of the United States forbid what Arizona has done. Our cases have held, with regard to claimed federal abridgment by law of another inherent sovereign power of the states, namely their sovereign immunity from suit, that any abridgment by Congress must be, quote, unequivocally expressed, close quote. The same requirement must apply here, and there is no unequivocal congressional prohibition of what Arizona has done. It is not enough to say that the federal immigration laws implicitly, quote, occupy the field, so-called field preemption. No federal law says that the states cannot have their own immigration law. Of course, the Supremacy Clause establishes that federal immigration law is supreme, so that the state's immigration laws cannot conflict with it, cannot admit those whom federal law would exclude or exclude those whom federal law would admit. But that has not occurred here. Arizona has attached consequences under state law to acts that are unlawful under federal law. Illegal aliens' presence in Arizona and their failure to maintain or to have on, on their person evidence of federal alien registration. It is not at all unusual for state law to impose additional penalties or attach additional consequences to acts that are unlawful under federal law. State drug laws are a good example. That does not conflict with federal law. In sum, Arizona is entitled to impose additional penalties and consequences for violations of federal immigration laws because it, it is entitled to have its own immigration laws. We're left here with a serious dispute about federalism, about the division of authority between the states and the national government, and what that means for big policy disputes in the United States, in this case, immigration and health care. But federalism touches ongoing questions about marriage, religious liberty, drugs, policing, bail, school curricula, and funding and a whole host of big, important policy questions in the United States. And the contours of those debates are still shaped by the choices made in Philadelphia in 1787.